Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. There's a saying from Henry David Thoreau that not until we are lost do we begin to understand ourselves. And Zig Ziglar said, if you learn from defeat, then you haven't really lost. Well, today our guest and her story reflect these quotes. Her first name is Sarah, and her name has significance in many parts of the world. You can find the name Sarah in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, and the Islamic Quran. In Hebrew, it means princess. In Sanskrit, it means essence. In Persian, it means excellent. All these definitions symbolize our guest today because her journey in life has been one that has consisted of many detours along the way, but she really hasn't lost track of her destination. Her new book, Lost and Found, is a biography of her life, but she's only 25. Yet, the book has a great story to tell. She was born into a household of a world-famous megachurch pastor, but became pregnant at the age of 14, and then rose above social adversity to becoming a businesswoman, an on-air TV personality, a writer, and having a blog that averages more than 15 million impressions per week. It's an honor and pleasure to welcome the charming and intelligent Sarah Jakes. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Well, I read your book, Lost and Found, cover to cover. It's simple, easy to read, filled with great quotes from you, and there's a lot of irony in there. And I enjoyed the read because it actually gave me an insight into how the younger generation like yourself think. And I was impressed, but I want to know why you thought it would be a good idea to write a biography at the age of 25. Well, uh, like you said, I'd started blogging, and so many people were coming onto my blog commending me on being transparent. Mm -hmm. And all I was doing at the time was just sharing the emotions that I felt. I really didn't feel like I was actually being transparent. And so when I was approached by a publisher who noticed the audience that I was garnering, they asked me what I wanted the topic to be about, and I thought that this would be an opportunity to really be as transparent as I had been claimed to be on my blog. And so Lost and Found is me sharing some of the lessons that have helped so many people through the blog. Now, who are you appealing to? What's the typical profile of your follower that you think? Well, I think that I want to appeal to people who have experienced something in life in their past, whether it was something that has happened to them or a mistake that they've made that made them settle or just what they thought was attainable for themselves, and to really challenge them to look beyond that and into grace and to see that we all have these um, roadblocks, these detours, these things that threaten to really take the future as we dreamed it could be and to uh, still dare to live again. But what's the typical demographic of your follower you think is sort right of now, finds appeal? Right now, I mean, there are women who are 18 to 49, almost going well into their 50s, and um, right down the middle of that, 18 to 35, and then 36 and up, about 50-50, um, which was it's really exciting for me and um, because I didn't think that my message was something that would resonate with other women. And much like themselves, like I thought that I was the only one who was dealing with this shame and this guilt. And so to know that not only does it cross over our generational uh, demographics, but also um, our race and religion, also denominations, that the shame and the guilt know us all, but that um, we're still hoping to do better. Well, there's so much made about your pregnancy, uh, the teenage pregnancy aspect. So let's get that out of the way. Um, if your critics 
were to say that you're trying to glorify teenage pregnancy from your book, how would you respond? Oh, no. Um, it wasn't my desire to glorify teen pregnancy, but rather shed a, a truthful light on the shame. I think that on, you know, we have these television shows like Teen Mom, where they um, in many ways show the difficulties that come in actually raising the child, but not necessarily the emotional disparity that comes when you have a child before you fully know yourself. And so for me, Lost and Found is an opportunity to really get to the heart of the matter mm-hmm. And to express that it's so much bigger than, you know, just the care that is involved with the baby, but how it affects you mentally and emotionally for many years to come. But then your book is a biography, but then I think you have so many quotes in there. Is there a message, an overall message that someone would get from your book? I think it depends on the experience that the person carries into the book, mm-hmm. what would stand out the most. But I hope that whatever that message that they take away is, that it all leads back to grace in some way, shape, and form. I really wanted my story to be one of the transformation that comes once we accept God's grace for our lives. Did you discover that people in the church changed around you when your pregnancy was made public? Oh, certainly. I think um, for... The other children who I were hanging out at my age, that their children, uh, their parents certainly moved them away. They didn't, if, you know, as if the pregnancy would be contagious, or their mindset would be contagious. And um, also, I think that they knew that there was time for me to really focus on having a child. That I would have to put many childish things away, and to see, you know, adults that I thought were you know, like family to me kind of shoo away while I went through that process was kind of very painful, but ultimately gratifying because it taught me so much about myself and parenting. Then this certain feeling of being ostracized. Certainly. Did you manage to sort of feel distant from being part of the church within yourself? I did. I felt very much so ostracized, and uh, I think part of it was the separation that began between my friends and people as my pregnancy became public knowledge, but also something that I felt on the inside, that because I had made this mistake or because I had had this challenge, that I wasn't as good or as worthy as the other people who were in church. And so it really did kind of um, make me become more silent, more introverted than I was before because I wasn't sure that... um, I had much of a story or journey to share or that people would want to be connected to me. You know, I find it strange because being part of a church, everyone feels so holy. Mm-hmm. And there's that philosophy that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. But then yeah. when, when it happens in front of them, they suddenly became, become two-faced. And the problem with two-faced people, I never know which side to slap first. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some truth in that. We do, you know, the church, I've heard a lot of people say the church is supposed to be a hospital where all of the people who are broken or hurting come in for an opportunity to be healed, but instead so many people choose to rather cover that they are in pain or don't come to the hospital at all out of fear of the judgment that they will receive. And I think that there is some truth to that. And I do think that there is responsibility, one, on, you know, the person who comes to the church to come in more open-minded and to not let past church hurt or an estimation of what we think a reaction will be to keep us from getting the help we need. And also the responsibility of the church to make sure that we show God's love and allow him to convict hearts. Did that level of hypocrisy affect you? Because 
you know, when it comes to seeing a part of their flock fall victim to being lost, uh, rather than helping you, these churchgoers lay judgment, because even God judges you at death. I, do, I think that um, the hypocrisy did affect me. I don't know that they knew what to say. And I think sometimes when you don't know what to say or how to handle a situation that you pull away completely. And when you pull away, it leaves the person that you pulled away from guessing as to what does that mean. Does that mean you're ashamed of me or does that mean that you're praying for me? Does that mean that you wanted to respect my privacy? All we know is that we've been isolated and we aren't exactly sure why. And for me, I assumed and felt that it meant that um, they no longer wanted anything to do with me. Well, here's a question. Why did you choose not to abort? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I knew that some people had made that decision, and actually a friend of mine told me, you know, you could abort your baby. This doesn't have to be something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And But I knew that even with abortion, that it's not something that just goes away, that it's something that you deal with and process for many years to come. And for me, I felt that I could take care of him and that I would... Um, although it wasn't the best situation to bring a child in, that I didn't want to make any more damage than necessary. And uh, with God's help, that I could stand up to it. But you felt all that at the age of 14? I did. I felt like I could do it. I'm not exactly sure why or, you know, where that strength came from or reasoning came from. And maybe at the time it wasn't even strength or courage. It was just me wanting to try to make the best out of the situation and take responsibility as much as I could. But I did. I felt like I was capable of doing it. Well, you know, you taught me a valuable lesson as a parent because if I had a daughter, I'd send her out with a tic-tac every time she went for a date and ask her to hold it between her kneecaps. That's the best contraception there is. Well, you let me know how that works. <laughs> now, um, when I was reading the book, part of me felt that you were rebelling against the church. Because on page 35, and I'm going to quote you, you said, I didn't get to maintain my secret rebellion against church members' expectations for long. Mm -hmm. So why were you rebelling? I did not want to live up to the idea of being Chidi Jake's daughter and the concept of perfection that came with that. I knew that I was too confused to ever make a decision to be, you know, clearly a, a devout, no-questioning Christian because I had all of these questions roaming in my head and I wasn't ready to say, I can really do this as living for God thing without making any mistakes. So instead, I explored my humanity and the different feelings that and emotions that I had. And um, I did so knowing that it wouldn't be something that fit well into this perfect idea of Christianity and of church. And so instead, I decided to stray away from it completely. Was it tough being a pastor's daughter growing up? It was. And I didn't realize how tough it was, I think, until I got much older because it was the only thing I'd ever really known. Mm -hmm. And so I assume, you know, that there are challenges with being anyone's daughter. But I do believe there's a certain level of added pressure when your father uh, has touched as many lives as he has. Did your parents ever realize the pressure you were under? Or were they really busy sort of serving the church? think that they were busy dealing with the pressure that comes with being themselves. And I'm not sure that we were fully aware or communicated with one another enough 
what that pressure was. I think we all assumed that we were, you know, handling it fine. And it really wasn't until the pregnancy that we really got a chance to huddle together as a family and really discuss some of the challenges that come with doing ministry in a spotlight while still trying to find our way. So I I think I wrote and lost and found that the pregnancy really did bring us closer together as a family. So the crisis actually brought you all together again. Indeed. Here's on on page 52. You said, I did not want the church world I could hardly understand to become a part of the village that would help me raise my son. What's wrong with the church world? Well, the that expectation and the judgment that I felt leading up to the pregnancy, I didn't necessarily want him to feel that same level of pressure. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that I could protect him from that if I kept him out of the village. And uh, ultimately, that village is still helping me raise him, and there are so many beautiful things that come with it that, of course, I explore in depth and lost and found that I didn't realize what I had until I no longer had access to it. And then you went on to say, very few people know the cost of ministry. Anytime you give away something that's in you, you lose a piece of you. What, What did you mean by that? When you're doing ministry from the heart, there's a certain level of vulnerability that comes with that and exposure to people's opinion and criticism, but you do so so that God can use you and that you can help others. But because you are still human, whenever it doesn't quite fit the bill, that it makes you feel like um, maybe you somehow did miss the mark, miss what God has called you to do. But um, it's really important, I think, in ministry that we make sure that we keep our hearts as servants to God and not to people, but it's difficult to kind of draw a line in the sand. But don't you think as you're growing older that everything in life has rules, whether you're part of a corporation, whether you're part of a family, part of the ministry, there's certain rules um, that are basic and expected to be followed. But I think maybe in your younger days, you didn't want to follow them. Exactly. And of course, once you get older as well and you start, you get into the workforce and, you know, college, even education on a larger scale, you start to realize that everything has its own set of rules and politics and personalities. And it's a a lesson that you have to learn and not just isolate to church, because otherwise you do walk around with this resentment just to church. But when in the the reality is that it exists in every circle, but you don't let that become more important than the mission. Do you find people who were ostracizing you have come back now that you've established a certain level of success and you are really a trajectory upwards? Uh, they have, and I think that uh, the most interesting comment I get is that people say, I knew I knew it was you, I knew it was going to be you. And I was like, really? Because I had no idea. But um, to their credit, I think that some of them, like I said, stepped away while I developed and learned my lessons, and others of them, you know, didn't want to be connected to someone who had made those mistakes. But above all, I really do think regardless of why they stepped away, that they do have a sense of pride in knowing that they were there, witnessed, you know, some of the challenges, but also got to see me bounce back and learn from those lessons and go on to help others. But those who are isolating you, how do you handle that? I mean, now that Uh, you're back on track, uh, isn't it... Doesn't someone who's two-faced upset you? No, it doesn't upset me because I think I've been guilty of doing the same thing. And so you kind of understand that sometimes in life that you judge too soon. 
and if anything, it's made me more compassionate. I don't have any hate towards them, though, because I think that that still allows them too much power into who I've become, and I never want my success or my ability to overcome to be attributed to the fact that I wanted to prove people wrong as much as it is that I wanted to prove myself, my self-doubt, my fears, and my shame wrong that I could still go on and excel. So I try not to make it about other people and really make it about my journey and my experience. But then are you more wary of them? It makes me more careful about my circle and who I know was there regardless, who I could count on and trust to be there because as I do continue to grow, I know that I will have other moments. Like I'm not uh, finished yet and that there will be many more lessons to learn. And however those lessons come, I want to make sure that the people who are around me will be gentle as I receive new wounds. Now in all of this, um, your dad usually takes the limelight. But your mother, what role has she played in all of this? My mother is very much so the glue of our family. Mm -hmm. Um, While my father's in the limelight and us were in school and all of us having our different, you know, lives, my mother's the one who can pull us all together. And so I think my father is very much so the foundation of our family, but my mother is certainly the glue. And she is the one person who, regardless of how we felt about ourselves, our mistakes, no matter how upset we were or how disappointed we were in people who reminded us that God would still love us regardless. And until we really got that message, she insists on showing us God's love in everything that she does. We're never out of her reach, ever, any of us. What sort of rules does she have at home? Oh, goodness, respect. (laughs) Respect is a big one, Um, taking care of yourself, keeping your appearance together, you know, getting up and making sure that you're well-groomed and that you put on the best presentation possible, the best version of yourself possible before you go out into the world. What would you say are the top three things she's taught you? Um, To be authentically myself, Mm -hmm. to not be ashamed of our scars, and to love in spite of our pain. Wow. And then how do your siblings react? Are they all, they all follow through? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My mother, I think that they would probably all agree with those lessons. It is a true testament to parenting when you have five children and all five of them think that they are only children. (laughs) We all think that we're her favorite. Some kind of way we all feel like we have a monopoly on her. We have conversations and we're like, my mom, my mom, but we're talking to (laughs) to one another. It's not like we're sharing her. She's created such a unique and special bond with each of us that we feel like we have exclusive rights. Are you, at the end of the day, an ordinary family indoors? Oh, absolutely. So do your siblings fight and quarrel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All the time. And then she plays judge? Absolutely. All the time. Even if we're joking around, my little brother lives with me, and so I'll call her and I'll go, Mom, you know, like Dexter just said this, or Dexter told me this, and um, my sister and I are very close in age. She's definitely the referee. Well, on page 68, you said, until you confront your wrongs, you cannot create rights. Yeah. 
Um, okay. How do you confront them? Because can you not just forget and move on? Because these days, all the pastors and, and, and you know, all the um, motivational speakers, all, all they talk about is forgive and forget. You're, you're, you're saying something else. You're saying confront your wrongs. Yeah, I think we should forgive and learn that we can't just act like something didn't happen, that we can't. And I think that that was the greatest thing with me is that my family forgave me, but I wanted to know, you know, do you still accept me? Like, is this really forgotten? And I think what they were trying to express to me through their love is that we forgive you and are giving you another opportunity to grow and learn. And it wasn't necessarily that they forgot everything, that, you know, everything was washed away. It was just that they trusted that I could create something new. But I wanted to know that they forgot it. And um, I think that I really had to relearn that. It took me, of course, many years before I realized that it wasn't just that they forgot that anything happened, that they trusted that I could do something new. And I didn't take the best advantage of those opportunities. And then you're saying that you, you're convinced that our worship is most beautiful when we are desperate for an answer from God. Yeah. When we have nothing else to lose, nowhere else to go. When we are completely and utterly lost, that is when our worship is most powerful. I do believe so. When uh, From our broken places, when we cry out to God, that uh, we really alert the heaven, embark heaven with our requests. Because there's a certain level of hunger and desperation when you've tried every single thing and you're finally on your knees saying, God, you know, like, I really need your help through this. I don't know if I can do it on my own. Because until then, we, when we have a few options, we're not as desperate, you know, when we think, oh, there's, I could still get out of this or this could still happen and it wouldn't be so bad. But when you have no other option but to come to God, I think we cry out to him so differently. Well, you know, I was desperate once. Um, well, many times, but really desperate at one point in my life. And in that time, my worship wasn't powerful. And the reason it wasn't powerful was because it was desperate. And I couldn't give because I had nothing to give. And it made me realize that I was alone and by myself. I had to fight my own battles, but share the glory with God. And, I, and in, in my own experience, I learned that the purpose of God was through my failures. I mean, I might fail by myself, but I succeed due to God. It's kind of unfair, but, you know, such is life. Mm-hmm. And I find that every time I'm desperate or needing something, if I keep praying, it doesn't work. I have to actually use that time in actually making things better by myself. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't, when I say desperate for something, I don't necessarily mean an, an actual thing as much as we need you know, that touch from God, the grace of God. And I don't mean to cry out in desperation for, like, tangible things, but when you are hungry for that, you know, consolation of knowing that you're not alone, especially when you feel so isolated by shame and fear or whatever your circumstance may be, but to really cry out to God like not like never before. For me, it was uh, one of the most authentic worship experiences that I had. When I'm praying, I ask God for giving me signs of existence that everything will be okay or it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where I'm going wrong because I never get those signs. <laughs> well, I think we do get the signs. We just, uh, then maybe they don't always come in the way that we expect. From desperation, you went to seek forgiveness. And you said, what better way to complete the process of forgiveness than to be trained to help my dad? Why were you seeking forgiveness from him? 
Well, I think I had forgiveness from him. I just didn't believe that he truly forgave me. And I wanted him to know that he wasn't wrong for believing in me, that in spite of the challenges that I may have experienced with the pregnancy, that I could still come out on top. Did you feel you had harmed him because being someone in his position and he was still aspiring to even greater things, you actually created a stumbling block for him? Certainly, and I carried that with me and wanted to fix it. And I thought that if I went on to work for the ministry in any capacity, that that would be my way of giving back. Then you were seeking forgiveness, but do you think you'd also lost your parents' trust? Oh, certainly, yeah. And I, rightfully so. I don't think that you get to have a child at 14 without losing their trust. And so very, I very much so wanted to earn it back and to make them proud of me again. And, you know, I wanted to be proud of myself again and to show them that my life would be so much bigger than that one moment. But they trusted you enough to listen to you and have the baby. Yes. And I didn't even see it that way. Hmm. Did they ever make you think twice? No, but they wanted me to be very sure because they told me, you know, like, we're not going to raise this baby for you. You know, if you have this baby, it's going to be your responsibility. So when you make the decision, make sure that it's something that you're willing to stand up to. What would you say to your critics if they said this was an easy way out to do something useful with your life, like helping your dad, since his infrastructure of the ministry was already well established? Um, that they have to understand that when you are a family and you see something built growing up without you, that uh, you want to be on, for many ways it was like being on the outside looking in because we were too young to really contribute. And so I never saw it as something that I was a part of, and especially since I didn't have those ministry talents that thrust you into the choir or praise team at an early age, that I really thought the only way to really achieve being a part of it was to pursue my education and then go on to help on the administrative side because my father is uh, very organized and very diligent about the ministry. He doesn't just give us anything, and I knew that if I wanted the position, I would have to earn it. Well, it's very ironic in what you said uh, in the book, and it says how tragic it is when we're only comfortable when we are surrounded by discomfort. Yeah. And I've noticed that with a lot of people, that they, they seem to be happy surrounded by bad times um, only because when the good times come, they're actually scared that it won't last. Yeah, absolutely. I think we fall in love with the pressure to perform in bad timing, that there's something that we you know, about we have to get it done or we have to find our way out. And there's something about the dysfunction and the noise and the busyness of it all that distracts us from our own thoughts and our own process. And then when it's completely quiet, we don't know what to do with peace. Give me an example of when you felt comfortable in discomfort. Oh, goodness. Um, in my marriage, I was comfortable with discomfort, even uh in college, I think that things had finally kind of steadied out a little bit, and I couldn't believe that the trust was there. I couldn't believe that the forgiveness was there, and so I wanted to create opportunities where that pressure to perform still existed. Did you feel in, 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 in all this time, from the ages of 14 to your 25 now, in the last 11 years, you've had to grow up faster than people of your age on an equivalent level? Um, 
Um, I don't. It's hard to say because I would have thought that had you asked me before I started my blog. But now that I've started my blog, I see that we've all had these instances. Maybe it wasn't a pregnancy, but we've all experienced something in some way that made us grow up. And some people have stories that are much more challenging than I think mine was. And so um, I do think that I had to grow up fast, especially having my son and wanting to be a parent with him. But I, I can't say that I... I am the only one who had to grow up so quickly, but uh, it may be an anomaly for sure. One of the messages I got from your book was, you say that if only we spent more time embracing who we are and less time grieving who we thought we were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I had trouble coming to terms with that because I thought, isn't that wrong? Because in that case, we'll never become better than who we are today. Well, and I think by that, what I meant is, like, for so long, I I believed that I grieved the fact that I had my son early and felt like I was behind. You know, I'm behind the race, and, you know, my friends are going to graduate before I am. They're going to be able to have more successful careers because they can travel more than I can. I spent so long grieving that any time they had an accomplishment, it was a reflection of how much harder I was going to have to work to receive that same accomplishment. And I think that I grieved that for so long that I couldn't embrace the fact that this is my process and the journey that I have to take on my own. And from that embracing, I'm able to then dream again. And once we accept our reality, I believe that God can truly bless us. And then you say doing the right thing will make you better, but it doesn't make life any easier. So my question to you is, in that case, is there any value in doing the right thing? Yes, absolutely. I, I believe... The intention behind that statement is that doing the right thing isn't always easy, but that it will make you better. Because sometimes the easy way out doesn't necessarily uh, grow us. We don't learn from it. We don't evolve. Our thoughts and process don't evolve when we do what's easy. But when we take the time to do the work, no matter how diligent or tedious it might be, that the outcome is worth it. And what example in your life do you have where you thought, doing the right thing would make you better, even though life wasn't any easier? Mm, well, the most simplest uh, example that I can give you is even working out, that um, it's so easy to just sit down and eat what you want, but mm -hmm. to actually get up and run for a mile and to get on a machine and sweat and to feel your heart rate going up, it doesn't feel very easy in the moment. It feels very taxing. It's very hard. But in the end, your body is better. You you feel better. Your mind is more clear because you took an opportunity to work on yourself, no matter how difficult that was. And I do think that it translates in other areas of our lives. Even in college, you know, the coursework is very difficult. And if you aren't careful, you can become very discouraged. But at the end of the day, if the degree is what God has told you that you need in order to go to the next level, that it's going to be worth the work, no matter how difficult it is in the moment. And then you went on to say you attracted insecurity to you. Mm -hmm. It comforted you until it broke you. Yeah. Is that true in life? Fear attracts fear? Uh, I, I do believe that there's a lot of truth in the law of attraction. And uh, I certainly had all of these insecurities in my about myself in the forefront of my mind that I was constantly trying to battle. And because those insecurities were so present in all that I did, I do believe that I attracted insecurity. But here's, sure. here's what I'm trying to come to grips with. Okay. Where is this insecurity coming from? Because this is the way I see it. Um, you had 
you know, enough money. Uh, there was food on the table. You probably had your dresses and, and things like that. You were raised in the house of God by, by a man of God. Uh, you had a wonderful family. You, you know, your mom's such a strong core of the household. Mm-hmm. So where are these insecurities coming from or why are they coming? Well, to have all of those things and still end up pregnant at 14. Mm. You know, like you, you were supposed to be the one that, you know, the statistics didn't apply to. You were supposed to be the one that had it all together. How did you mess up on it? How did you mess it up when you had everything in front of you? That was the insecurity, that we can have these picture-perfect lives on the outside and still struggle on the inside and then feel guilty for having the struggle that we are in some ways supposed to not experience any obstacles because we have food on the table and we have dresses that, you know, life somehow skips past us and we don't have any blows that come and knock the wind out of us. And so I carried that with me for so long because I knew that people would think, like you just said, that nothing was supposed to happen to me. Well, from speaking with you, you know, I think you've been fighting your destiny in the past for all these reasons best known to you, but I think your destiny lies in the footsteps of your family and the church because reading the book, no matter how many times you rebelled, you came back to the same place where Faith and family take precedence over everything else. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is, um, you know, one of the things I say in the book that after I spent all of this time running from this idea of church and running from this idea of not fitting into the family, and it was the church and my family that ultimately allowed me to encounter my truth and accept myself and really begin to love myself the way that God loves us. So, Do you think you'll ever get lost again? You will? Mm-hmm. I know that I will, because that is what life is about. It's a constant journey of being lost and found in new levels and new stages. It is my prayer that I'm never lost in the same way again. But as I continue to grow, that um, there will be challenge. Like this new life that I'm encountering with um, the book coming out and all of the scrutiny and exposure that comes with that and Mm -hmm. you know i'm going to try as hard as i can to hold on to my truth hold on to the lessons but i know that there are new things for me to learn and new experiences for me to glean from and so i i may be lost again but i plan to take the lessons from this journey and apply it to the next one so that maybe the damage won't be as extensive as the first time are you discovering in the process of publicizing yourself are you discovering haters I have not experienced any haters yet. Mm-hmm. Nothing in the blogs? Nothing. But I will say that I don't uh, search for it either. So if they are talking about me, I don't know about it. They haven't said it to my face, so to speak, um, because I try to be very careful. I wrote the book from such a pure place, started the blog from such a pure place, that I don't want to actively seek uh, criticism that may hurt me. And so uh, I try to be very diligent about that. What would be the three things you would tell our listeners that they need to do to f- in order to find themselves if they're lost? Mm, goodness, to admit that you aren't where you want to be, mm-hmm. that regardless of how well put together your life may or may not be, that us pretending to have it all together prohibits us from really having it all together and that to retrace our steps to go back to the moment where we felt the most safe, felt the most collected, and determine what changed between then and there and, you know, how did it change, and then from that point deciding how we can 
take our new normal and create peace and hope within that. It sounds like a bit like a corporate strategy, assess, plan and act. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your roles in the various parts of your business empire. Now, you oversee the women's ministry at the Potter's House. I do. What's the need for the women's ministry? Oh, goodness. I will say that being in the women's ministry really gave me um, the safety to kind of expose my scars and wounds to other women because I learned in the women's ministry that so many of us are hurting and so many of us are broken and so many of us are just searching for day-to-day. We get caught up in the hustle and bustle of kids and bills. And so being uh, able to serve the women of the Potter's House helped me to see that sometimes above all before we can receive a message or a word from the Lord that we need the comfort of knowing that we haven't been in our situations alone. And so in the women's ministry, I try to create a, uh, an atmosphere of transparency where we are okay to say that we aren't okay and then really invite God in to help us to grow and heal, and not just on a spiritual level, but to also give practical tools. You know, I I try to make sure that I have forms that help them with their credit and budgeting and resumes and, you know, being better wives, being more creative with your children, and even down to recipes, what's for dinner. So I try to... um, So it's a lifestyle institution. Certainly, yeah. So is there a men's ministry? There is, Mm mm-hmm. What do they do? I don't know. (laughs) So who's in charge of that? There is certainly a variation of what we do with the women's ministry. I know they do sporting events and I have prayer meetings and prayer breakfasts, but they when I when they say no women allowed, they really do mean it. <laughs> well, that sounds good because the women learn how to cook and then the men play football. <laughs> some, some, and then we take turns with that as well. We're going old school then. We're going back to old school. You also said when princesses don't follow directions, they can't inherit the palaces that their father, the king, has waiting for them. Is that a direct indication of telling us that you're going to take over and become a pastor? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Really? No, sir. Absolutely not. Why not? That was a very quick answer. Um, unless God impresses it upon my heart right now, I am completely comfortable sharing my story as just me, Sarah, without the title of pastor. I do believe that there is, for mentally for people, a certain separation that comes when you have the clergy title, and I think that there is certainly a level of respect and admiration that comes with that. But because my story right now is so relatable, people think, you know, like I'm their sister, I'm their friend in their head. I don't necessarily want to create that uh, separation that comes. I enjoy right now having friends everywhere. <laughs> but then, you know, the way you're writing, the, the, the quality of quotes from your book, you're coming across as a pastor. Is and that so? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely so. Because it's just not about anyone can read the Bible, I can do it. But explaining it, talking about it, working around it, spreading the message in a way that makes sense in everyday English. Yeah. That's one of the magic things your father does. It is, huh? And I, I found there were traits of that in, in your book. Oh, goodness. I know. So, you know, uh, <laughs> is this like a very, very slick, jakey way of slowly <laughs> entering into the world, you know? Take a, tip in, take a dip in the pool, toe by toe? 
right now I can tell you definitively I have no intentions on becoming a pastor, but I am not closing it off altogether only because I've done that before and ended up... (laughs) You sound like a political candidate. I do? Oh, goodness. (laughs) I'm thinking about it, but I haven't committed. (laughs) Well, can you become a pastor despite your past? Yes. Oh, you can? Okay. There are no rules forbidding you from doing so. No, absolutely not. I think that it's probably my own still battle with uh, becoming a pastor. I don't know. I just never saw No, but then on page 86, you said my pregnancy no longer made me fit for ministry. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's not necessarily the pregnancy now at this point, though, as much as it is. um, I don't know. I've seen my father be in ministry for so long, and I know that the level of dedication that comes with it, I know the level of studying and intense... um, scrutiny that comes with becoming a pastor. And right now, I think because I have been so transparent that people allow me the room to have an authentic journey with God that sometimes isn't perfect. And I think it's unfair that pastors are held to such a level of perfection that it um, it keeps them from really being human. And I look at all of these pastoral suicides that we've experienced lately, and it makes me wonder, you know, what if it would have been okay for them to just say that I'm not okay, that I'm struggling. But because they are pastors, I think sometimes they aren't allowed um, the same treatment that they offer every Sunday. And um, I'm I'm not ready to hand that over yet. I'd rather revolutionize that thinking and then become a pastor. (laughs) I think you will. I think the way you're going, because I think... You said your followers are around the ages of 18 to 49. I wouldn't be surprised if they're from 13 upwards. Because you're coming across as an icon that despite there are about 1 million teenage pregnancies happening in the U.S., even though it's declining. And a lot of them would look to you for hope, spiritual guidance. So you're almost like an informal pastor. I I like that. I like that. I, I will... I mean, certainly, if God, honestly, I would become a pastor if that's what I felt like God had placed on my heart. He just hasn't placed that on my heart right now. I'm not completely... I haven't got the phone call for me yet either, so... <laughs> yeah, but, but when the phone when the phone rings, I'll certainly answer it. But until then, I do, um, I do take very seriously, though, the influence and inspiration that people glean from my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also make sure that I remain very authentic. And when someone tells me that I inspire them, I tell them that we can inspire one another. And I really do want it to become a journey where they don't just watch me and wonder, you know, how I figured it out, but rather that we kind of lock arms and decide to do it together. Well, you know what? That's what happens when you're a celebrity. People do watch and just follow. You're always going to have some people who just do that. Mm-hmm. But let's move on. You're a senior editor of Emotions. That's an inspirational magazine it is. designed to embrace, educate, and empower women. Mm-hmm. You know, I find this whole thing about this women thing in the U.S., mm-hmm. there's always something for women. you got the women's ministry. you got this, that. And educate and empower. I haven't met an uneducated and a weak woman yet. I tried finding one as a wife, but the last species <laughs> of the weak and uneducated woman died with the dinosaurs. Oh. That's a good thing. Yeah, I think that um, it's not that we don't believe that women are, you know, educated and inspired at all. Mm. But I think that uh, women are so often um, they take so much responsibility for other people in their lives because I know that women. Well, what about us men? We do too. 
Yeah, but I'd say in today's I world, women have more weapons than the mujahideen. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I think that women are sometimes often naturally nurturers, and in that we don't always take the best care of ourselves. And so we try to create these, you know, whether it's the magazine or speaking opportunities or even within the women's ministry, an opportunity to remind them that to take care of themselves. And from that point that they are better fit to take care of the people in their lives. Okay, I've got about four minutes left. Okay. And I want to get deep and personal. Okay. What's the one thing no one knows about you? And before you even think about answering, I don't want any silly answer. I want something really juicy. Do you pick your oh, nose, goodness. put it on the steering wheel? What do you do? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I was going to tell you that I collect Barbies, but you want something. You there. want what? You do what? I collect Barbies. Okay, that's not going to work. I know. I see. Um, let's see. I am. Oh, goodness. I am. The clock's I am ticking. not very. I don't consider myself to be very outgoing or social. So as I embark into this world where I'm... Oh, really? Because when you're talking to 30,000 people and you're going to tell me that, you know, I don't consider myself social. Exactly. Come on, give me something more juicy, princess. You've got to do better, sister. Oh, no, it's so true, though. I get so nervous. I I sweat like crazy. Like, I'm always... Oh, so you get armpit stains on your clothes? Yes, absolutely. Nobody knows that about you? Absolutely. All the time. I constantly... like. My producer's getting a heart attack right at the moment. (laughs) Don't be asking her that. No, it's true though. When I tell, when I pick out my clothes, I have to pick out clothes that don't show when I sweat because I get so nervous about sharing my story in public speaking. It's and I haven't seen a, a, a drop of sweat on your forehead. Extra foundation. <laughs> it's powder. You block those pores. It's powder, and I know what clothes to wear. Oh, good, good. <laughs> now you have a tattoo of grace on your shoulder. I do. A little rebel, you. <laughs> I have four tattoos. Oh, you have oh, four? there you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, okay, go on. I have a cross on my wrist mm-hmm. that has two M's on it for Malachi and Mackenzie, my children. Right. I have an ace of spade on the base of my neck. My brother and I have matching tattoos. Oh, great. And um, I have a rose on my hip. Now that's, okay, on your hip. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's one to go for. Um, as part of being a guest on this show... We offer all our guests a free tattoo of the Vip Jaswal Report icon oh, on the other hip. Very kind of you. So you could I say, been there, why. done that. <laughs> well, how on earth did you lose 50 pounds? Oh, goodness. I started going to the gym every day for two hours the beginning of January of 2013. And I just decided I love food. Like, I love to eat all kinds of food that's terrible for your body. Mm -hmm. But I started feeling very heavy, and I'd eat and didn't feel good about myself. And, you know, looking in the mirror, I was like, man, you need to lose these, you know, you need to lose this extra weight here and this extra weight there. You got to really take care of yourself. And so I gave myself one month that I would eat completely clean and go to the gym. And I'd told myself I probably wouldn't lose that much weight because I'm, you know, naturally big boned or where I'm supposed to be this size. And the first month I lost 15 pounds and I was like, wow, maybe if I really made this a habit and a lifestyle of really taking care of myself, that not only would I feel better, my thoughts be much clearer, Mm -hmm. that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel the way I thought about my body anymore. And I think that if we start our days already defeated about how we feel about our bodies from there, as we encounter life, we've already got a mindset of defeat from the very 
start of our day. And so I noticed that when I would, you know, when I'm going to the gym and taking care of myself, that I feel so much more empowered to take on other areas of my life. Well, we've come to the end of the show, Sarah. You've been great. Where can we get the book? Uh, everywhere books are sold uh, April 1st, but you can pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Loved having you on the show. Thanks for bearing up with me. My pleasure. <laughs> Wish you all the best for your future, and I know it's going to be a bright one. Keep your shades on. Thanks. The book's a great read filled with great quotes. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments on your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser, and also thanks to Kayla Adams for making this interview happen. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones, and until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.